Finally, the pieces are beginning to come together. 536 AD, as you hopefully know by now, was an irreversible threshold, carrying his story into the arms of the Thousand Year Reign, as it appears to be the year of the Fire Reset. With a year as epic as that one, you figure a sequel would be in the works. His story offers us one. Would you be surprised to learn that it involves Camelot, and that 537 serves as its bookend? Look, whether or not Arthur's story is fictional, and therefore allegorical for something else, or ultimately deemed historical, the rise and fall of Camelot has long been a splinter in my mind. Questions still surround the Arthurian mysteries, though I'm more inclined to think that later romances were based on historical reality, from a certain point of view, especially now that the puzzle is more fully formed. A year or two ago, I might have suggested the rise and fall of Camelot was a less-than-perfect metaphor for the quote-unquote Dark Ages, aka the Millennial Kingdom of Mashiach. Its blend of magic and paganism within the arms of Christianity lends to the imperfect side of the equation. That proposition still may be the case, I couldn't really say. But then it was while researching the volcanic winter of 536, the last video I put out, that I panned this little golden nugget of information. 537, the action of Camlan, in which Arthur and Mordred fell, and there was a plague in Britain, in Ireland, the Annals of Cambrai. That's a reference to the final duel to the death between Arthur and Mordred, in case you were wondering. The end of Camelot. And look at the date, 537. The person who scribbled in the log even thought to include the plague of Britain and Ireland as a tie-in, an obvious result of the 18 months without the sun. Allegory indeed. The Orwellians may be telling us something. Camelot, the so-called Kingdom of Light, ended abruptly with the rude interruption of the Dark Ages, wink wink, and wouldn't presume again for another thousand years, with the introduction of the quote-unquote Enlightenment. It's really rather difficult writing these things without having to constantly flex my eyelids to my reading audience with the wink winks, or else they will begin to think I've started up a steady blue pill diet. No way, no how. The Battle of Camlin was Arthur's legendary final battle, in which he either died fighting Mordred, who also perished, or was taken to Avalon immediately afterwards to await his return, which would involve the final restoration of Britain. Mordred was the son of King Arthur and Morgaus, the Queen of Orkney, but then Morgaus also shared Arthur's same mother, Egraine through her first husband, Gorlois, making Arthur and Morgaus a pair of half-sibling lovers. This means that in addition to being Arthur's son, Mordred was also his nephew. Yeah, there's a lot of kinky ancestral stuff going on in the Arthurian mysteries. Geoffrey of Monmouth included the battle in his historical chronicle, Historia Regum Britannae, which we are told was written in 1136. To sum it up, Arthur went to France to wage war against the Roman leader Lucius Tiberius, 
leaving his nephew Mordred in charge of Camelot. In his absence, Mordred married Arthur's wife Guinevere so as to claim the throne for himself. The same thing happened to King David, if you will recall. Arthur then gathered what remained of his army and confronted Mordred at the River Camel in Cornwall. It was a bloodbath for both sides. The Lancelot Grail Cycle, which we are told was a gross embellishment of 13th century France, has a slightly different story to tell. In that one, Arthur goes to France to confront Lancelot rather than the Romans. Lancelot had committed adultery with Guinevere, killing Mordred's siblings in the process, which would also assign them as Arthur's nephews. So in pursuing Lancelot or confronting him, he left Mordred in charge of Camelot, like in Geoffrey's telling, but in this one he too betrayed him. So upon returning to Britain, Mordred's army, mostly consisting of Saxon and Irish allies, outnumbered Arthur's two to one. Take a mental note of the Saxons. Normally, I would tell you to plant a moon flag on that one, but this time, unlike the Apollo 11 hoax, there is more than meets the eye to the Saxon invasion. Ironically, the war between Mordred and Arthur may have even been prevented had it not been for a startled knight who drew his sword to kill a viper during standoff negotiations. Fighting ensued, and several kings aligned with Arthur as well as the Knights of the Round Table. Those who had survived the Grail Quest, at any rate, were nearly all killed. Mordred was killed, Arthur was mortally wounded, Excalibur returned to the Lady of the Lake, whereas Arthur was carted off to Avalon. Guinevere retired as a nun and Lancelot as a monk, seeking penance for their sins. It was the end of Camelot. The age of the Saxons had begun. Do you remember what I told you regarding the Saxon invasion in a past paper? It can be found in The Lost Tribes of Tartaria, and there you'll have to find the section where I talk about the People of the Covenants and the Stone of Scone to reference what I'm prepared to talk about. If you haven't read the paper or heard the presentation, then no worries. Follow along. I have often heard that the Saxons were invaders and not the true people of Britain. But at the end of the day, it's all in how you think about it. Britain, after all, is a Hebrew word. Yes, you heard me right. I nearly choked on my tea and puff pastry when reading the very thing originally. Come to learn, the Celtic language very likely developed out of the ancient Hebrew language as well. The Celts being descended from Yasharel and all, as were the Scots, as were the people of Denmark, as well as the Saxons. It means covenants, in case you were wondering. The word Brits or Berith carries with it the sense of cutting. You will recall how Abraham personally observed Yahuwaha passing between the severed halves of an animal in Bereshith 1517 when a covenant was cut with him. To add to that, the word for people in Hebrew is Am, and so the term covenant people in Hebrew would be Britam, which is rather close to Britain, don't you think? Even the word Ish in Hebrew means man. British, therefore, directs us to the covenant man, or perhaps the covenant men. They are coming, you know. I am reminded of it often around these parts, come every July. The British are coming. 
You may be wondering how that connects us with Yasharel. Well, simple. They too are the people of the covenant. It says so right here. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and guard my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which ye shall speak unto the children of Yasharel. Shemoth, or Exodus 19, 5-6. Obeying his voice is identified with guarding his covenant. Best to guard Yahuwah's covenant then, via obeying his voice. And of course, supposing you took the time to read the Lost Tribes of Tartaria, then you'll recall my stance on the nation of Britain, which was this. It was ground zero for the Millennial Kingdom. Hold on, because I'm not done yet. The Saxons who invaded the land were in fact the people of Yasharel, as Saxon is a corrupted form of Isaac, or rather, Yitshak's sons. There are those who will call such conclusions terrible research, but that is just wishful thinking on their part. What pipe are they smoking? The Phoenicians, who were of course the Yahudim, called the house of Yasharel the Beth Sak, which means house of Isaac. The children of Yasharel were also called Saksuna by others, which again, simply means sons of Isaac. And so, perhaps now you can see what was really going on in 537. Camelot fell, but only in the wake of the Saxons' arrival. Many centuries afterwards, the Arthurian storytellers bemoaned the Saxon invaders who had reshaped their land as well as their people. There is more of that Orwellian talk when in likelihood the sons of Yasharel were arriving to claim their kingdom.